Amen. So our passage this morning gives us a comprehensive vision of reality. Um, In fact, we considered this just a few weeks back. And it gives us these uh, verses from Colossians, the beginning and the end, the reason and the goal of creation, which is, in a word, Christ. All things, the apostle says, have been created through him and for him. He has been appointed as the head of all things in creation and in new creation. Christ is the firstborn of all creation, verse 15, and the firstborn from the dead, so that he will come to have the first place in everything. So in the deepest sense, creation, this universe that we inhabit, is for Christ. It exists because it exists for him. He was appointed, the scriptures tell us, before the foundation of the world to be its ruler and to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. And the shorthand for all this, the easy way to sum up all that Colossians is trying to tell us is this simple statement, Jesus is Lord. It's the church's most basic confession. If you Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord. It's the kernel of the gospel. What we believe is that God has raised the crucified Jesus from the dead and installed him at his right hand as the ruler of the universe, things visible and invisible. Christ, then, is the goal of creation. All things are advancing toward their end in him to share in his relationship with the Father. Creation will be transparent to Christ as Christ is transparent to the Father till on that last day it can be said Christ is all and in all so that every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. So it's a vision of things that one can scarcely imagine but there it is. All things united to Christ in his unity to the Father through the Spirit. Now, there's more to say, and it will be said in time next week. However, I want to take a different approach this morning. All things have been created for Christ, and that refers to the very reason for their existence. It answers the question, why there is something rather than nothing. All things have been created for Christ. But it also says that all things have been created through Christ. And that refers to the rationale within creation. It explains the startling logic and coherence present within our world. And it's that through him element of what the apostle says here that I want to explore again this morning, but this time in a more apologetic vein. Right? In, in a way that tries to defend the Christian vision of things. Because this notion that the universe came to existence, that it came to be through Christ, who is the Word and the wisdom of God, is remarkable in its explanatory power and its ability to make sense of the world that we inhabit. So building upon the groundwork that we already laid, 
um, our sermon last time in Colossians, um, we're going to consider the way our world is. And namely, what I mean by that is its order and moreover the ability of the human mind to understand that order, to, to discern it and to We'll get into it. And then we want to examine why this might be so. And so we'll see, hopefully, to the benefit of your faith, how Christianity offers a vision of things that makes sense of the world, both of its rational transparency and its fundamental interconnectedness. So we'll start at the bottom, again, with this rational order within things, And then we'll work our way up toward an explanation. Now, I mentioned a couple weeks ago something intuitively obvious to everybody that doesn't have to be learned, but that it almost confronts us. And that is that the universe is beautifully and rationally ordered. Now, this requires an explanation. It's too pervasive, it's too evident not to have some accounting for. Either, on the one hand, it needs to be explained away, as in the materialist position, or this order that we find in the world needs to be grounded in something transcendent, as in the various supernatural positions. The one thing that it cannot be is overlooked and unexamined. So before we consider these explanations for why the world is just so, and even the more mysterious thing that why our minds can understand it, we need to consider just the basic fact of reality, the thing that we so often overlook. And it begins our experience of reality with wonder. And wonder is the strangeness of everything familiar. When it comes, wonder, one author says, it is a moment of alienation from the ordinary. It has a certain quality of mystifying happiness about it, the exhilarating feeling that one is at the border of some tremendous and beautiful discovery. And I think if we've ever had, and certainly we have, this experience of wonder, we can relate to what is being said there. It's those experiences when the normal that which is overlooked and underappreciated, seemingly confronts us with its sheer existence. In the fancy philosophical terms, this is called the ontological surprise. But really what it is, wonder, is the realization that there is something rather than nothing. And that this something doesn't have to be here. It doesn't account for itself. So, so try this as an illustration. Imagine you're out on a walk for the woods, in the woods rather, um, and you come upon this massive, translucent ball. Massive, bigger than uh, the trees around you. Now, what's your first reaction going to be when you come upon this site? Very likely, you're going to be shocked by the sheer strangeness of it, the out-of-placeness of this object. And then you'll begin to question, once you kind of settle into the experience, how it came to be here. What is this very unnatural object doing in the middle of the forest? So its very presence, right, demands an explanation. The one thing you're not going to do in that whole situation is think that it just happens to be here, right? That it just showed up without explanation or cause. 
Now, I've stolen this illustration from a philosopher named Richard Taylor. And he kind of sets us up because he says that what we failed to notice in our experience of this giant translucent ball is that we might ask the same question equally well for any other thing in the woods, be it a rock or a tree or whatever, no less than this translucent sphere in front of us. The only reason, he says, that we ask those questions about the sphere is because it's obviously out of place. But, as far as existence is concerned, as far as the fact that there's anything at all, everything is out of place. All of it, reality, everything that we see is equally as strange as that giant translucent ball. We've merely become accustomed to it, and so insulated from asking those questions. So what is any of this doing here? We are confronted to ask ourselves, just like you would be with that translucent sphere. Wonder overtakes us, this feeling of mystifying happiness, when we see all things as strange as that object in the forest, unaccounted for and just there. It's there. We live in this world that just happens to be. And so after that initial shock, right, when you settle into the fact that there's something rather than nothing, wonder sets in still further. The second realization is that this something that is in front of us, that the world we inhabit, has a remarkable harmony and beauty about it. In those rare instances, when in one moment of perception the whole is taken in, almost in that split second where you're able to take off the filter, so to speak, and receive it all, the order deep within things presents itself to our minds. It emerges more so as this deep intuition from within that somehow it all makes sense and it all works together. All the pieces fit. And while the whole picture is never quite grasped, certainly, right, and if you've had the experience, this order, this symmetry inherent in nature becomes transparent to us. Hence wonder, right, this feeling where everything familiar, normal, mundane, overlooked, we just go our way without taking time to notice it, becomes strange once again. And we realize this is the world we live in, and there's a majesty and glory about it all. Now, that order, of course, is present within the particulars, um, the elegant form and the proportion of all living creatures, uh, the beauty that we see in all of it, even in inanimate creation. Something like William Blake. William Blake writes, I really like what he has to say. He says, to see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour, right, where this beauty presents itself. But it also presents itself in the universal, right? And this is where we want to focus. How each life form cooperates and depends upon the others. And how this interdependence gives rise to the stunning complexity of the ecosystem. And in those moments of insight, when this existence and harmony of things confronts us, the undeniable impression made upon us is one of beauty. Again, the form, the proportion of it all, 
appeals to something innate within us, a standard present in the mind. It's less, than, it's less the things themselves that bring this feeling upon us, but the sense that there's something more beyond them. Again, I mention this rational order present within the world, immediately obvious and beautiful to our senses because it's present to everyone. It's not necessarily attained through scientific training, but it's there. It's more remembered than learned. And regardless of one's station or their learnedness, it's equally accessible to all. However, scientific training can and does help us probe deeper into the rationality within the world. This rationality runs deeper than what our senses can immediately perceive. We find out that it penetrates to the cellular level and even beyond that to the chemical and atomic levels, that things just make sense down there and somehow they work together. And from there it reaches to the very heights, to the very processes that govern the material universe itself. This rationality, this intelligibility, runs right through the heart of things. And of course, this is the fundamental conviction that undergirds the scientific enterprise. We can discover all these things. We can send uh, uh, the, the, the telescope into space and see the furthest reaches of the universe um, because there is a rationality in creation. Again, this requires explanation. Why are things like this so beautifully and rationally ordered? And now before we want to get to that, I want to push it still further. Consider numbers. Seems like a strange thing to bring up, but consider numbers as the supreme instance of rational order within creation. Now, quite obviously, numbers are not physical entities, right? I can't take the number three and launch it through a window. One, yet numbers, rather, these abstract objects, these non-physical entities have a very real relationship to the physical world. One author I was reading this week called Mathematics an angelic language of nearly limitless intelligibility. And what he's referring to is the ability of numbers and mathematics to describe reality. Abstract numbers and the physical world seem to fit together as perfectly as two puzzle pieces. In other words, woven into the fabric of creation is this order that we're able to discern through numbers and mathematics. So so consider the equation on a mathematician's paper, which to most of us reads like a foreign language, can put a 40-ton plane in the air. It can send a rocket into space, and it can place a submarine beneath the ocean. These immaterial, abstract objects, symbolized in numbers and equations, somehow describe reality. So that what fits on that paper actually works in the world. In some sense, these numbers are reality. Hence, mathematicians working at the highest level sometimes refer to their work more as discovery than invention. They frame themselves less as architects who are creating this thing, but more as archaeologists who are discovering something already present in the creation. An equation doesn't invent something that was not there, but discovers it. 
already existing independent of human understanding. So Luke Ferry, a philosopher, um, he puts it this way. I can do nothing about it. Two plus two equals four. And this is not a matter of taste or subjective choice. The necessities of which I speak impose themselves upon me as if they come from elsewhere. And yet it is inside myself that this transcendence is present and palpably so. So what he's saying is that whether or not humans appeared on earth with the ability to discover that 2 plus 2 equals 4, 2 plus 2 would have always equaled 4. Whether or not there was anyone to ever put, put that equation, simple mathematics, together. It's a reality that exists out there. It's not something cooked up in the brain. Roger Penrose, someone you may have heard of, a mathematical physicist who deals with equations far more advanced than 2 plus 2 equals 4, he describes mathematics and what he does this way. He says, There often does appear to be some profound reality about these mathematical concepts, going quite beyond the deliberations of any particular mathematician. It is as though human thought is, instead, being guided toward some external, eternal external truth. A truth which has a reality of its own and which, which is revealed only partially to us. So, he's saying there's something about this, that this order that exists independent of us, that's there, discerned through numbers and mathematics. And here, I'm going beyond what many mathematicians would be comfortable with, but it seems that these numbers, these abstract objects, which in, exist independently of creation, are also the foundation upon which creation is built, where through mathematics we can discern these most fundamental aspects of reality. Indeed, some theologians and philosophers have gone so far as to say that the universe is made from these abstract objects. Startling, the author of Hebrews, our own scriptures, he seems to say something familiar, writing in Hebrews chapter 11, what is seen, the material universe, was made from things that are not visible. That the material universe has a invisible rational order upon which it's founded. So again, apart from speculation, the point is simple. There is this elegant, almost living rationality present within things, embodied in the physical processes and laws which we can discern through science and mathematics. And this cannot go without explanation. It's too great a marvel, too suggestive in its implications to simply explain away. Why is the world like this? Alistair McGrath, a scientist and theologian, he kind of frames the question this way. He says, why is the world so beautifully and fruitfully ordered? Science is very happy to exploit the rational transparency of the universe, meaning to discover it and to discern that it makes sense, but, he says, it's not in a position to explain its origin. In other words, science can tell us how the universe works, it's how it's rationally ordered, but it cannot explain why that's the case. And the great mistake that naturalistic or materialistic scientists and philosophers make is to conflate the two to confuse the how with the why. Just because we understand how the universe works, 
and how it came to be, that does not mean that we've even begun to answer the more pressing question of why. Those are not the same thing. So this popular notion that science proves that God does not exist is a catastrophic category error because it misunderstands what science is and it misunderstands what God is. But this mystery of a rational universe is greater still. So in this abridged tour that we're taking of the universe, we've made an incredible assumption and, and that is that our minds can discern and understand the order present within things. And here we come upon what I think to be the most staggering reality of all. And somehow, the rationality out there in the universe is also in here, in the human mind. These two distinct realities seem to be fitted to one another transparent to one another. Now, if this correspondence between the human mind and the physical universe um, doesn't startle us, it's only because it's so familiar. It's the foundation of everything we do, and so it's hard to get a third-person perspective upon it. Now, John Polkinghorne, um, another scientist and theologian who kind of operates in the, in, in, in the relation between the two He tries to show us the wonder of it all, that somehow this corresponds to that. He says, We are are so familiar with the fact that we can understand the world that most of the time we take it for granted. He says, There is a congruence between our minds and the universe, between the rationality experienced within and the rationality observed without. So in some inexplicable way, the structures and patterns of the mind, its own logic, the rationality that it possesses, is mirrored in the universe. One philosopher said that the pattern by which things are made is embedded within us. And human thought, then, is a a receptivity to this pattern, the possibility of discerning it and understanding it. Again, Alistair McGrath, there is something strange about both the world and the mind that allows the pattern regularity within nature to be discerned, represented, and understood. Again, take numbers as an example. If they're not merely inventions, but abstract concepts with an independent existence of the physical world, somehow the human mind can access and understand this realm. The mathematical structure in and beyond nature is also contained in the human mind. Human thought is near the origin of things, and the mind exists between, on the border rather, between the material and the immaterial. So here's how, again, a secular mathematician describes what he's doing. He says, all mathematicians live in two different worlds. They live in the crystalline world of perfect platonic forms, but they also live in the common world where things are transient, ambiguous, subject to vicissitudes. Mathematicians go backward and forward from one world to another. So again, the question that we're trying to get to, the the one that I hope would stir up within your own heart is, where does this strange correspondence between the world and the mind come from? 
How is it that they're transparent to one another, open to one another, at once contained and containing the other? C.S. Lewis, he kind of frames it this way, and I think it's probably the best way to put it. He says, The nature of the universe cannot really be alien to reason. He says, We find that matters always, or he says, rather, we find that matter always obeys the same laws which our logic obeys. When logic says a thing must be so, nature always agrees. They fit together. That somehow what works up here works out there. Nature always agrees with the mind. So where does this come from? How can it be accounted for? Now, in purely naturalistic terms, right? And by that, what I mean is that there's no, we're not acknowledging anything supernatural. In purely naturalistic terms, the compatibility between the world and the mind cannot be accounted for. We can't make sense of why this is. So initially, materialists or naturalists have the problem that there's a rational order out there in the world. It has to be explained away, either as um, a mirage or a happy accident. Either an essentially random process produced this meticulous order we find in the world, or it's all really chaos and it only appears that way to us. It has to be explained away. Now that problem is compounded by the even more staggering reality that somehow the human mind can discern this rational order, whether it's real or imagined. So a materialist, someone who doesn't want to give any weight to any supernatural explanation, they back themselves into a very cramped corner. And they're forced to say something like this. It just so happens that an essentially random and arbitrary process gave rise to, coher- to a coherent and ordered universe. And moreover, an inherently mindless universe guided by natural selection alone produced the human mind, which is a world-spanning intelligence. So what we have here is miracle heaped upon miracle and a scarcely coherent and believable account of how things came to be. Now, really, a really good apologist, David Bentley Hart, he points out the inconsistency here in the materialist position. He says, If, moreover, naturalism is correct, and if consciousness is essentially a material phenomenon, then there really is no reason to believe that our minds, having evolved purely through natural selection, could possibly be capable of knowing what is or is not true about reality as a whole. This yields the delightful paradox that if naturalism is true as a picture of reality, it is necessarily false as a philosophical precept. For no one's belief in truth of natu- in the truth of naturalism could correspond to reality except through a shocking coincidence, or better, a miracle. So on its own presuppositions... Materialism, naturalism, defeats itself. Because an electrical impulse in the brain, if that's all consciousness is, can neither be true or false. Thus, if materialism is true, it's the greatest miracle of all, because somehow the mindless universe produced the illusion of mind that down throughout history became capable of recognizing that it was an illusion in a meaningless universe and this is the only true thing. So C.S. Lewis, he, he, he humorously puts it this way. 
He says, it's as if cabbages, in addition to resulting from the laws of botany, also gave lectures on the subject. Or as if when I knocked out my pipe, the ashes arranged themselves into letters which read, we are the ashes of a knocked out pipe. So in its ability to explain this rationality present within the world, and then again, this deeper mystery of why that same rationality is in the human mind, materialism is the least convincing option there is. You you have to heap miracle upon miracle. It only makes a kind of nonsensical sense. And moreover, when we apply that view with consistency, there's no reason to trust the conclusions that the human mind makes. It only makes sense to believe in human reason as the instrument through which we can arrive at the truth if one believes in God apart from some transcendent ground which exists independent of the physical universe, reason and consciousness are at best an illusion. They might be good for basic survival, but not for plumbing the deepest mysteries of the universe, for discovering um, all the things that humans have discovered. Hence, again, another philosopher says, the neo-Darwinian account of our history is not one that we can coherently believe. He says, if we attempt to follow through its implications, we find that it gives us no right to believe in the theories we form about the world, including the neo-Darwinian story itself. It must also lead to doubts about the consciousness of fellow creatures and even absurdly our own. Right? So if we play by their logic, that it all just happened by chance and the mind isn't really something beyond the world, but it's just material processes, then why do we have any reason to trust the mind? to rely upon the reason that it has and the judgments that it comes to. There is no reason. So one of the most renowned materialist philosophers, Daniel Dennett, um, obviously you guys are familiar with the name, this is the position that he takes. He says that consciousness or the illusion of consciousness emerges from the various systems and subsystems of the brain interacting with one another. He calls it the multiple draft model. Essentially, what the theory supposes is that as these systems and subsystems bump into one another in the evolved mind, um, they produce the mists or the fog of consciousness. Something that seems like it's real, something that seems like it can make good judgments, but is nevertheless just kind of the result, the emergence of these interacting systems. So It might feel like something real is going on up there, but it's merely the residue of a mishmash of evolutionary developments. Now, it's an explanation, right? But it's one that's devoid of explanatory power. There's nothing really to... Well, that makes sense of the world as we know it, unless one just wants to say it's all nonsense, but that's not tenable. So hence, the unexamined basis that undergirds all human learning, right? In In every sphere is faith. We, we can never get away from faith. Because it's an aspect, well, to believe, rather, that any of our judgments about the world are true, we have to believe that there's a connection between the mind and the world. We have to believe that it rests on something deeper than just the material foundations. One may deny it, but they cannot escape this explicit presupposition, this act of faith. Because apart from it, again, there's no basis on which to proceed. All knowledge is a mirage. All of it is a worthless 
gain. Because if the rationality in the mind is not also in the world, then there's no reason to trust anything. If the human mind is merely the result of natural selection, then there's no reason to trust its conclusions. Again, um, let's wrap this section up with C.S. Lewis. He says, Where thought is strictly rational, meaning thought that makes sense, he says, it must be in some odd sense not ours, but cosmic or supercosmic. It must be something not shut up inside our heads, but already out there in the universe or behind the universe. Unless all that we take to be knowledge is an illusion, we must hold that in thinking, we are not reading rationality into the universe, but responding to a rationality which the universe, which with the universe has always been saturated. So it's there. And that's the presupposition of all our thinking, if we're to move forward in any of it. Now, as I said, the Christian vision of reality, specifically our passage here in Colossians in John chapter 1, where it says all things were created through Christ, the wisdom and word of God, makes the most sense of why the world is the way it is, of why there's a rationality in the world that we can discern and take use to our advantage, and the rationality in the mind that somehow fits to it. So let's conclude there. Now, in the New Testament, we're given three principal metaphors for the Son's relationship to the Father. And they are word, John chapter 1, image, here in Colossians, and radiance, Hebrews chapter 1. And what these images do is communicate the same basic truth that the Son mirrors the Father's divine perfection back to Him. So the Father speaks His Word, and this Word is nothing other than the complete articulation of the Father's being in its fullness. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the Father speaks, and what He speaks again is Himself in the person of the Son. Uh, in His Son, His image, right? His reflection, The Father sees His own beauty and holiness and power reflected back to Him in its completion. Again, as we read in our passage, it pleased the Father for in Him all the fullness to dwell. There's no difference. There's no no difference in the reflection, right, in the image. And of course, the Father shines. And what comes from Him is the Son, His radiance, who is the very same as its source. So, Communicated, then, in these images is that the Son mirrors the Father back to Him. He's the same as the Father, but there's this relationship of facing one another. I think, however, the Word captures this truth in the most sublime manner. In the Greek, as you guys know, it's the term logos. And it also principally means reason, right? You could just as well say, in the beginning was the reason. Now, the Son is the reason of the Father, which is analogous to what we learned last time, that through this figure of wisdom, the world was created. The Son is the wisdom of the Father. So put simply, here's here's all that we're trying to say. The Father beholds Himself and knows Himself through the Son. The Word is nothing other than the divine understanding. The Son of God is nothing other than the reason inherent within God Himself by which the Father sees himself reflected in another person and so loves himself in the Spirit. Now, 
apart from that dense Trinitarian theology, it's this reason, that's all you guys need to really understand, the reason, this divine understanding, the second person of the Trinity, the scripture says, through whom the Father created the universe. All things, our passage, have been created through him and for him. All things came into being through him, John chapter 1, the Apostle John says. The reason there is a rationality present within creation, from its lowest quantum reaches to its highest thermodynamic peaks, is because it was made through reason itself, the Son of God. He is the uncreated reason of the Father, and the universe is his created expression, mirroring his own intelligibility. Now, I won't spend too much time on that because that's what we talked about a couple sermons ago, so you can listen to that if you weren't here. But here, I want to add this secondary notion, right? We said that there's, there's a rationality in the world, but there's also one in the mind. John chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 4 say this, All things came into being through him, that's the word, the reason of God, and apart from him nothing came into being which has come into being. In him was life, and the light was the light of men. So the reason through whom all things were created is also identified here as the light of men. And this is how we can account for the correspondence between the rationality out there in the world and in here, in the human mind. The reason, the Son of God, is the ground of both realities, uniting the two. Both are open and transparent to one another because they are both created expressions of the divine original. The reason through whom the world came to be is also the reason that enlightens every man, that gives, that gives wisdom and knowledge to every person. So we can discern this beautiful order out in the world because we, humanity, have been created in the image of the Logos, in the image of the Son of God, who is the Word and wisdom of God. So I'll sum it up here with uh, Stephen R.L. Clark, who I learned this from. He says, The Word that was with God in the beginning is the Logos, the pattern by which all things were made. That is the same light that lights every man. To have faith in the possibilities of human science and scholarship, it is necessary to think that there is such a Logos, such a pattern that is also present to the human soul. And there, in a rather unelegant way, we have to crash land the plane. Because I'd like to draw, I'd like to have drawn some grand conclusions from this about how Christianity just encompasses everything and makes sense of it all. But that's going to have to wait for another time um, or a conversation later. In the meantime, we must turn from speculating about this Logos to commune with him in the Lord's Supper. He is the reason that pervades all things and sustains all things. And he is the reason that's the very foundation of our life, physically and spiritually. As the apostle will say later, Christ is our life, through whom we created and for whom we were created. So let's bow our hearts to his majesty now and ask that in communion with him, he, we would be conformed to his image as he is the perfect image of the Father. So please come now and get the communion elements. Take time to um, draw near to the Lord and I'll lead us in uh, the supper in just a moment.